Hello and welcome to the final episode in the first series of Theoretically Speaking. Over the course of the series we asked you what topics you wanted to hear about on the show and one thing that got particular interest was quantum computing. So for the last episode in this series we thought we'd talk about how quantum computers will change the way chemistry is done. Yeah, but there was one small issue with this plan in that we don't really know much about quantum computing, do we Tim? <laughs> no, not really. So this week we thought we'd do a special extended interview with our guest, who is a world-leading expert in the field of quantum computing in chemistry. That's right, we were lucky enough to talk to Professor Alain Aspiru-Guzik at Harvard University, who kindly offered to explain it all to us. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and about what sort of research you do? My name is Alain Aspuruguzik, and I'm a professor at Harvard University in the Department of Chemistry. And my research is at the interface of chemistry with physics and computer science. Okay, so as part of your research, we understand you're quite interested in how to use quantum computers in chemistry. Could you just start by telling us what a quantum computer is and kind of how it works? Yes, yeah, so quantum computers are a very interesting set of devices that are very, very active right now. The original idea of quantum computing harks back all the way down to Richard Feynman, who in 1982 proposed that perhaps for the purpose of simulating physical systems that are quantum mechanical in nature, we should use a quantum mechanical device. This realization from Feynman very early on led to the development of a field that tries to employ the quantum nature of devices to carry out computation. And in particular, a very important concept that you might want to think about in quantum computing is the idea of the quantum bit or qubit which is basically a two-level system that can act as a logical zero or one, but here's where things get spooky, <laughs> can also have superpositions between such a zero and one, you know, with all the rules of quantum mechanics, and can also entangle a particular qubit with another qubit. Okay, so instead of a bit, which is a one or a zero, you have this quantum bit, which is some kind of superposition of the two. So how does that work physically? How does the quantum computer physically store that qubit? There are many different ways of storing qubits. Any controllable quantum two-level system that fulfills certain requirements can become a qubit, and turns out this criteria are called the DiVincenzo criteria. And systems that I know that fulfill this criteria that have to do with, well, individual qubit addressability, arbitrary entanglement with the neighbors, etc., include ion traps, places where people actually trap electromagnetically little ionized atoms that are actually used as qubits. And then the way they are entangled with each other is by the vibrational modes of the trapping potential, which is really cool because it has to do with chemistry-like ideas. A very promising architecture also is superconducting quantum bits. They are basically niobium or other material superconductor loops that have a particular insulator in between, so-called Josephson junction, that allows to have this nonlinearity that makes these little quantum harmonic oscillators slightly unharmonic, and therefore you can access superpositions of, say, current going to the left and current going to the right in simplification that will act as, you know, if it's going to the left up, it's going to the right down, so to speak, as an example of another platform. There's many different proposals for qubits, but the top two right now actually happen to be ion traps and superconductors. Right, okay, so it's stored on a kind of atomic level. Uh-huh, and... or macroscopic. You know, the, the superconducting loops are actually quite much larger than a single atom. Okay, okay. And so how many qubits would make up a quantum computer, perhaps? Uh, well, is it quite a big number? Or... I just saw in Twitter right now, Google is announcing a 72-qubit device as we speak. 
72 qubits is quite exciting because you can hold a superposition up to 2 to the 72 states. Quite large number. Okay, so with 72, that would be a kind of world record, would it? Um, if they can show that this machine is controllable and has a reasonable amount of noise, that is correct. This is a certain type of qubit. There's other types of qubits, such as these adiabatic quantum computing qubits, where companies such as D-Wave, okay, they have these more restricted type of qubits, but they have shown machines up to 2,000 qubits, you know, so... So it depends exactly what type of quantum computer you're employing. And so if you've got this quantum computer that's made up of about kind of 20 qubits, if you showed me what a quantum computer would look like, what would I see? Well, the superconducting qubit, you will actually see these little superconducting loops in a a little chip-like object that are basically put inside of a dilution refrigerator, which is basically a large cylinder that has a lot of electronics that isolate the controls for this qubit. And the qubit is ultimately placed in a place where you actually use helium to cool it to extremely low temperature, you know, tens of microkelvins. Right. So it's basically very, very cold to actually maximize the quantum effects. Okay, cool. So I guess the question is, what kind of chemistry are you looking to do with quantum computers? What's the big advantage over the classical computers we use over here? So let me go historical. Let's go back to 1982 and the realization of Richard Feynman that quantum devices could simulate quantum systems. It was all the way until 1997 where my very close friend and colleague Seth Lloyd from MIT and his student Dan Abrams published a paper that shows that they could simulate with a quantum computer in polynomial time any quantum system that has a local Hamiltonian. And local is a little bit different technical term than in chemistry. But suffice it to say that physical systems have local Hamiltonians. So basically what he was saying is any quantum physical system can be simulated by a quantum computer. And that was his benchmark, 1997 paper. Then you fast forward to 2004, I was a postdoc at UC Berkeley with Martin Hedgordon, where my project was to figure out if a quantum computer could actually carry out quantum chemistry. Mm-hmm. I was just a postdoc for a few months working on this. When we found out that it was quite easy to take Seth Lloyd's algorithm, make a few adaptations, and then show that full configuration interaction, or in physics called exact diagonalization calculations, can be carried out on a quantum computer. So since then, tons of things have happened. Many other groups are interested in this quantum simulation. Commercial efforts have burgeoned, right? IBM, Google, Intel, Microsoft, to name a few, are actively trying to build quantum computers, have quantum software engineers in their payroll. And there's a large number of startups, including one coming out of my group called Zapata Computing, after the Mexican revolutionary Emiliano Zapata, which are actually working on this field of Specifically, many of these companies I mentioned are working on quantum chemistry as one of the early applications of quantum computers because it turns out that a very low requirement of qubits and very shallow gate numbers could allow you to do interesting problems in chemistry. This is quite interesting because last week we talked about on a classical computer, doing exact quantum calculations is exponential scaling, right? So what is it about quantum computers that, how do the algorithms make that polynomial scaling? Excellent. So I'm happy that you guys were talking about the exponential world that full CI gives to quantum chemistry. Historically, I mean, I was obsessed with this problem. I was working in quantum Monte Carlo as my PhD under Bill Lester at UC Berkeley. And, you know, I was trying to work around this problem. So I was working in the so-called fermion sign problem. So quantum computers don't have this problem because whenever you apply a so-called quantum gate, which is an operation on all these qubits, It's like a native operation at the quantum level, so it can create superpositions of all the qubits quite easily. And these superpositions ultimately correspond to the CI amplitudes. So with a polynomial number of pulses or gates, or let's say program instructions, 
you can prepare and time evolve states that correspond to molecular wave functions or approximations thereof. Okay, so that's quite interesting. And so how do you interact with a quantum computer? Because with a classical computer, you can write a computer program with computer code. Is there an equivalent for a quantum computer? Yes, it's quite cool. There's many layers in the stack for this. So let's just say first that my group and I, in 2010, with Andrew White, did the first quantum chemistry calculation. This is a paper published in Nature Chemistry. And this is a good example of how this is done. At the time, you know, the only thing you could do is actually write your little quantum circuit or quantum program. It's kind of written as musical notes. You have the qubits as lines going from left to right. And the operations that you do on the qubits as little boxes that are kind of like musical notes or operations that you do on a single qubit. And entangling operations between the qubits are vertical lines that go between the different horizontal lines that represent the qubits. So that's how a quantum circuit would look like. You guys can Google quantum circuit and then any listener of this podcast will be able to see some. So it's a bit like the old punch card things for original computers. That's correct, I guess. But for those early experiments that we've done, and we worked on many, more than 10 with different people around the world and architectures, many of them to actually carry out very early quantum chemistry calculations in quantum computers, you have to even go to the assembler and to the hardware and figure out how a particular gate is, being, is going to be implemented, right? So it's kind of like if you had to think about how the electrons are flowing in your chip every time you did a calculation. So that, that was the state of the art only about eight years ago. But now, fast forward to 2018, Microsoft has a programming language called Q-Sharp that's very high level that is intended to all the way compile down to the wire. All the vendors around the quantum computing space, including Rigete Computing, a startup with their Forest Toolkit, IBM with so-called Quizkit, and, and Google, etc., have programming environments that actually allow you to address the hardware at a much higher level than what I used to do you know, when my group was starting in this field. Because Computing, my startup, is trying to develop even a higher level kind of pan-architecture language for chemistry. So that's awesome. So in that original Nature paper that you published, you did the first quantum calculation on a hydrogen molecule, which is pretty understandable. What are the kind of limits now? How, how much bigger can we go? Um, the current record paper is a paper that I really love. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I really like it. Candala and co-workers from IBM use seven qubits, seven superconducting qubits, to simulate the beryllium dihydride molecule. After all, guys, all of this is in the minimal basis, so don't get super excited. <laughs> it's also noisy because we're in the area of noisy intermediate scale quantum computation. That basically means we do not have error correction in place, so all our results are kind of noisy in the field. But what I really like about this particular paper of IBM is that in this particular mapping, every qubit will correspond to a molecular orbital, and they literally color the qubit as different orbitals. So if you look at the figure of the paper, you will see this marriage of quantum computing and quantum chemistry just kind of for the dreams I've had in my entire life. So the fact that this nature paper by IBM has that particular figure and is showing the potential energy surface is kind of like a little dream for me. <laughs> and, and this is just the beginning, guys. Imagine what we are going to be able to do in that Google 72 qubit device once they open it. My group academically collaborates with them very closely and also my startup. So I'm pretty sure we would want to try to get our hands on those 72 qubits <laughs> and try to simulate a molecule there as well. Let me just say something before that probably you will ask me. I'm going to preempt it. It's going to take a while, guys, to actually be able to beat a classical computer, even though we're talking about more and more qubits and larger molecules, because to beat a classical computer, we most likely will need to be in the regime of quantum error correction. And to error correct a qubit and make it perfect, you require about 10,000 or so physical qubits to be able just to encode a single qubit. 
Oh, so is this the concept that over time your quantum computer might lose information and to make sure that doesn't happen, you have to have extra qubits to kind of fact check it and make sure it's okay? Is that correct? You got it. This fact checking happens all the time. You can buy error corrected RAM that has many bits in a classical computer that are actually used to check if your memory is not corrupted. So in a quantum computer, you can do the same as well. You can delocalize the information of a bit, zero or one, over say 10,000 of them, and then carry out these measurements that are called syndrome measurements to figure out if the quantum information has decohered or not. And if it has, given the structure of the quantum error correction protocol, you're able to carry out quantum operations to restore it. And the reason you can do that without violating the rules of quantum mechanics is that your information is delocalized over many, many, many qubits. And therefore, once you make these measurements, you're just learning a little bit about your total quantum system, and therefore you can actually correct it. So this area of quantum error correction is really amazing, and I predict that when somebody really is able to make a quantum memory, as it's called, a qubit that lasts forever, such a person will most likely be a serious contender for the Nobel Prize, because this will be the first time we can tame quantum nature, right? We can tame the quantum world so that we can actually preserve quantum information for as long as we want. And I think that's just mind-boggling and an evidence of the excellent century that we live on. What sort of things can't a quantum computer do? What will it never be better than a classical computer at? It's quite interesting. So it's a huge area of computational complexity theory that analyzes you know, the power of a quantum computer. The first thing I'll tell you is a quantum computer is universal, the ones that we've been talking about, which means in principle you could program a video game on it. You could program anything problem, of course, is why would you do that if there's no advantage of the quantum device, especially when you have so few qubits? So there are certain algorithms that you can do very well, like search, factoring, and quantum simulation. Factoring and quantum simulation, what I've been talking about, are exponentially better. Search is quadratically better than the best known classical algorithms. But now if we go now to algorithms that probably we won't be able to do, we know that the power of a quantum computer is not larger than, for example, problems that are generally very hard, you know, problems in the class NP. So certain instances of such problems, right, that are very glassy and have many, 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 many minima, like, for example, traveling salesman, we know that a quantum computer at best can only do a very simple polynomial advantage for such class of problems, not a real exponential advantage. So it won't really matter too much if you have a quantum computer and you're trying to solve such a big traveling salesman problem. Both the quantum computer and the classical computer will poop out. And the way you want to think about that is... Thinking about a quantum system trying to get the minimum of a very glassy or rough potential energy surface, even if it's a quantum wave function that is trying to move around in that space, trying to find the minimum, or if it's a classical, say, simulated annealing type protocol, you will get lost if the minimum is very hard to find, regardless if it's a quantum mechanical process that takes you there or a classical process. Mm -hmm. So you've also written this paper called The Matter Simulation Revolution. And basically in this, you say that by and large, we've actually achieved most of the initial aims of 20th century quantum chemistry, right? In that we can give a computer a molecule and it will calculate the energy, some kind of bond vibrations and, and lots of other properties to a pretty high accuracy, or at least a, a kind of known accuracy. So what are the challenges for the 21st century, I guess? Yeah, so thank you for mentioning that paper. I'm very proud of that paper. I wrote it with Roland Lind and Markus Reicher. And we got together to write a paper because we think that, as you correctly say, Theoretical chemistry is a function of the time you're in, and it's a field that is in the context of where humanity is, and somewhat, somehow, we got stuck in what was the context last century, and are still trying to solve problems that we have computers for, but we haven't looked around and see what computer science and other fields are on, and we haven't taken advantage of that more generally. 
there are six challenges we pose as interesting challenges where artificial intelligence and new computational platforms, etc., can actually bootstrap chemistry. One of them, the one that we're talking about, we call it the Feynman challenge, which is, can we simulate matter exactly? And this is one of the six challenges in the paper where we've been speaking for the last 20 minutes or so. But there's other challenges that I really like. For example, we pose a challenge called the inverse design challenge. I actively work on that in my group using tools from machine learning and even tools from quantum computing. The inverse design challenge says, okay, if you want to give me a target property, what is the molecular material that has that property, right? So instead of just going from an input file to an energy or a dynamics output, I want to optimize what's the best matter that actually carries out that job. And that has huge implications for society. And so that can be solved with machine learning models. We have a recent paper in ACS Central Science that exemplifies this. But not by any means, it's not only us that is working on this. Many people at Stanford, AstraZeneca, the group of Mark Waller, by the way, which you should interview, he's a fantastic scientist now at Shanghai, are working in that, in that area. So I guess that's almost the inverse of the way we kind of do chemistry now, right? Because now I, I set up a calculation, I run a simulation, and I measure the properties that come out the other end. Whereas you saying we should put the properties as the input and then get the molecule as the output. Is that correct? Exactly. And that's called inverse design. has been proposed for a while. Uh, David Veratan and Wei Tao Zhang had area papers on this. They were fantastic papers. The new aspect of this that is very exciting is artificial intelligence. So I think that area will allow us to jumpstart a new way of thinking about the world, which I like to call it emergence of what is called materials acceleration platforms. Okay? So I want to build with many colleagues around the world that are as crazy as me and my group, <laughs> this robotic machinery that is synthesizing molecules extremely quickly, characterizing them completely in line and using AI and these inverse design methods to iterate in what's the next best material to make to really quickly solve problems for humanity. We don't have time to get new energy materials. And just to point to the entire audience on this podcast, please Google Mission Innovation Challenge 6, and you will find out that Christine Person from Lawrence Berkeley and myself recently wrote a report with 50 and more other scientists around the world about this idea of the materials acceleration platforms that are actually in my mind and are actually exemplified in the paper that we're talking about this revolution as a one challenge that we like to call the matter computer thinking about the laboratory as a GPU. So I, I predict with theoreticians will be actually controlling laboratory equipment very soon. And so, so if you've built this machine that has artificial intelligence, can synthesize things, can analyze things, is this going to put me and David out of a job in the future? Because that's kind of what we do. Uh, that's a very, very good question. No. Oh, that's good. You. <laughs> it's going to empower you both to be much, much more powerful chemists. It's like if you told me, and actually chemists were thinking a little bit like that, if you look historically, Chemists were very resistant when your fellow citizen, Samuel Francis Boyce, did the first quantum chemistry calculation, general one, on the ETSAC computer, right? And published in 1955 in Nature, a paper called Automated Calculation of Molecular Structures or something like that. That pioneering paper by Samuel Francis Boyce, right, in the UK, at the time was very revolutionary and people probably thought the same thing, that this was going to get them out of business. What this will do is going to empower you guys to be much, much more impactful in society. I think theoretical chemists and scientists in general do not have the luxury anymore of just being abstract and just being in our little you know, ivory tower. We have the responsibility of using our tools to help the planet battle all the things that we're battling, going from climate change, you know, antibiotic resistance, all the way down to the lack of intelligence that we're seeing in our current leadership, especially in the United States. 
Well, that's really exciting. Yeah, that's super exciting. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. It's been uh, really interesting. Yeah, I, I really wish you the best luck for your podcast. I'm going to start promoting you guys religiously on my Twitter. <laughs> thank you. Everybody in this podcast, follow me. I'm A underscore Aspuru underscore Guzik. I'm very political, so I'll be posting many things against Donald Trump and other things. <laughs> but I also will be trying to be posting interesting scientific things, especially about quantum computing and machine learning. So please follow me on Twitter, and I'm going to be delighting you with either of those two things or my political opinions. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely great. Thank you very much, Alan. Yeah. Take care, guys. Okay? Wow, well that brings us to the end of this first series of Theoretically Speaking. As always, if you have any comments or questions, please do ask us on Twitter, at TheoryPod, or on Instagram, at Theoretically Speaking Podcast. We've had a great time producing these podcasts, but unfortunately we now have to do some actual work. We hope you've enjoyed it as well, and we'd like to thank all of you who have listened, commented, liked, upvoted, and retweeted our podcasts. Yes, and we'd also like to thank everyone who helped in the production of this podcast, all the academics who we interviewed, and a special thanks to Charles Ormrod, who wrote this cracking theme tune. All right, David, it's not the Oscars. <laughs> and as a final plug, our degrees are being funded by the TMCS, also known as the Theory and Modelling and Chemical Sciences, which is a great doctoral training centre based at the universities of Oxford, Bristol and Southampton. If you're interested in doing a master's or a PhD in computational or theoretical chemistry, be sure to check it out, as it's fantastic. I'm Tim Bird. And I'm David Ormrod. And this was Theoretically, Theoretically Speaking. Speaking.